Welcome to a history of Hanukkah, Hellenism, Heroism, and Hasmoneans. And our story begins with Alexander the Great. He assumes power at the age of 20, taking over for his dad, Philip. And he begins an unprecedented conquest of the entire known world. He was very systematic about what he did. So he began, of course, with the arch enemy of the Greeks. Of course, that's the Persians. And he continues to mow down country after country, land after land in the entire known world. And over the course of his 10-year campaign, he really captures everything. Everything um, uh, from Asia Minor all the way to the Near East, to India, to uh, Assyria and Egypt. He really covers everything. And what's really remarkable about him, he was he's considered one of the greatest military tactician of all time because he actually never lost a battle. Even uh, in battles where he was severely outnumbered, he was just a genius to know where to find the vulnerabilities of the enemy, and he was always victorious. And, and it's interesting for, for the Jews that he actually captured Jerusalem without a battle without any blood. And it's actually, I think, the only time in history uh, Jerusalem has changed hands, uh, I think, about a hundred times over the course of our known history. And the only time that it happened peacefully without any battle was this time. Now, the backstory to that is that the enemies of the Jews, uh, called we call them the Bat Samaritans, they had lobbied Alexander for permission to destroy the temple. Now, we're in the, in the, in the middle of the Second Temple era, and Jews have a high priest, and they have a temple, and they have sacrifices, but the land is not free of internal enemies. They have, if you remember, when, when the Assyrians uh, destroyed the kingdom of Israel, they had sent the ten lost tribes of Israel packing, and in their stead, they brought a group of people called the Samaritans, which were a thorn in the side of the Jews for centuries. So uh, the Samaritans, they were disappointed that the Jews had a certain degree of sovereignty over the land and they had a temple. So they told uh, Alexander that the, the Jews are rebelling against you. They don't want to support you. They're really secretly supporting the Persians. And they tried to get him uh, to grant the permission to destroy the temple. Now, the Jews sent Shimon Otzadak, who was the one of the last members of the Men of the Great Assembly, and he was also the high priest, to convince him to change his mind. In the Talmud, in the book of Yoma 69a, records uh, the encounter that happened between Shimon Tzaddik and the contingency of Jews and Alexander. The Gemara says that Shimon, he donned priestly garments, and with all the notables of Jerusalem, he sent out uh, along the way to meet uh, Alexander and the Greek army that walked through the night carrying torches. At dawn they met, and uh, Alexander asked the generals, who are these people? And they told him, well, these are the Jews, the ones who rebelled against you. As they got closer, and he recognized uh, Shimon Tzaddik, he gets off his horse, and he bows before him, which is unthinkable. The most, you know, the most powerful person in the world at the time is going to bow before the lowly Jew. And his people, his generals asked him, well, why are you doing that? And he said, every time before I go into battle, I see the image of this man, and he assures me victory. And uh, clearly, he's not uh, in, in any mood of destroying the Jews. And Alexander, and Alexander asks him, why, why do you guys come to meet me? So, he, so Shimon HaTada tells him 
that the idolaters, i.e. the Samaritans, they misled you and they want to destroy the house, the temple, where we offer prayers and sacrifices in your merit, so your kingdom should flourish. And he says, well, who are these people? The Samaritans. And he says, I'm going to give the Samaritans to you guys to do with them as you wish. So Alexander, uh, through his brief stint at the helm of the greatest empire the world had ever seen up to that point, maybe even since that point, he was very friendly to the Jews, and in fact, in appreciation of his bloodless capture of Jerusalem, they assigned uh, a rule across all of Judah that all all boys born that year are going to be named Alexander. And until this very day, the name Alexander and its variant called Sender is a very pop not, pop, not very popular, but uh, it's it's a Jewish name. Now, what's important to note about Greek conquest that it was more than just the capture of territory. What they would do is they would try to acculturate the local population uh, to Greek culture, what we know as Hellenism. So Hellenism is, is a broad term for all of Greek culture, which includes the arts and architecture, language, of course, the Greek language, uh, most nefariously for the Jews, a certain humanism. Now, we believe in human, in humanity, because humanity, you know, we have free will and we need to get close to God. But the Greek version of humanism was antithetical to Torah and to the Jewish way of life. They had this obsession with the body and with its physical prowess and physique. And thus, we know, you see the uh, the uh, remnants of Greek uh, in- installations. It's all these... Uh, uh, mighty, muscular men, and they all have these nice uh, six-pack abs. And we know they used to have these sporting events in these gymnasiums where everyone would take off all their clothing. And in the nude, they'd, they'd play sports because that was really what Hellenism represented. It was, it was an obsession with the physical and the beauty of the physical body and the physical world. And when they would capture a land, they would infuse it with Hellenism and try to make this big Greek empire, not just a, you know, a, a mothership with, a, a, with satellites, but uh, an integrated, uh, ideologically integrated, uh, cohesive uh, country and empire. Now, whereas the Greeks placed man at the center of the world, and even their gods, the Greek idols, were in the image of man, we look at it the other way around. We look at man in the image of God, and God is the epicenter of our world and our focus and our consciousness. We look at the body and the physical world, not as ends, but in fact as hindrances in our path in life. The body is trying to distort and obscure God. This world is known as the world of darkness because we cannot see God in this world. And therefore, their problems, they're not the solution. Whereas they try to bring out the beauty of the body, we try to bring out the beauty of the soul. So there's going to be a lot of tension brewing once these two great cultures are going to meet the Jews and uh, and the Greeks. There's going to be uh, some tension that's going to be built in. Now, early on, the Greek influence and Hellenistic influence is somewhat moderate. There are small pockets of Jews, primarily those in the upper class, and some of them also in the priestly class, that embraced certain 
uh, tenets of Hellenism, but overall it was widely rejected by the masses. Uh, but over the course of the next few centuries, this is going to play a much bigger role. Now, Alexander dies at the tender age of 32. He actually never makes it, makes it back from India. He's actually on his way back and he dies. And it was clear uh, right away that the, you cannot have a single leader to fill his shoes. Thus, eventually, after some settling, his empire was divided into three smaller empires known to us as the Assyrian Greek Empire, which also known as called the Seleucid Empire, the Ptolemyan, which is the Egyptian Greek Empire, and the Macedonian, which is in Greek proper. Now, Israel, or what we know today as Israel, what was called then Judah, is situated right in between the Assyrian Greek Empire and the Ptolemyan Greek Empire. So for the next hundred or so years, after Alexander dies, they're going to be sandwiched between two of the world's mighty Greek empires. And that's going to cause some problems because those two were always at war with each other, and therefore the the Jewish people right smack in the middle of it. Now initially, the Jews are under the Ptolemies, under the Egyptians, and each flavor of Greek empire was a little bit different. They still were Greek and they still espoused Hellenism, but they weren't quite exactly the same. So uh, when the Jews are under the Ptolemies, Hellenism begins to rise and develop, but the Ptolemies weren't as aggressive in pushing their Hellenistic agenda as the Assyrians were. So the Jews were a little bit shielded from the brunt of Hellenism because they were under the Ptolemies. Now, during that hundred years when the Jews were under the Ptolemies, there's a one major critical development that happened. Well, there's a lot of critical developments, but one really important one that happens. And that is under the leadership of Ptolemy II. So you have Ptolemy I and now Ptolemy II. This was a time where there wasn't a lot of war. There wasn't a lot of conquest. The center of the stage was no longer about uh, battle. And therefore, the people began to interest themselves in a lot in, in Greek culture and Greek ideas, and particularly literature. So what the Ptolemians did, they would establish libraries all across their, uh, their, their conquered people that had uh, a wide selection of Greek writings and Greek philosophy. Now, there was one book that Ptolemy really wanted to have but couldn't access, and that's the Torah. Because the Torah, until that point, was never translated. It was always in Hebrew, and the Greeks, they read Greek, they didn't read Hebrew. So what he did, he invited all the sages, a, a selection of sages, uh, he invited them down to Egypt. He didn't tell them why he's inviting them. And then he took it was 72 sages, and he put them into different rooms, and he said, okay, now each one of you, independent of each other, are going to translate the Torah. And the reason why he did that is because he really was curious to know what was inside the Torah, but if he asked the Jews to come up with a translation, then they'll say, well, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll conspire together to you know, to alter the translation in a way that would maybe sound a little bit more favorable. 
he wanted an authentic translation. So he called all the Jews and not telling them why under the ruse of some other reason. And then he separated them from each other. And then the 72 rabbis, each in their own little room, had to translate the Torah from, from Hebrew to Greek. So the Talmud tells us in the book of Medill what happened. It happened that King Talmud gathered 72 elders and placed them in 72 rooms without telling them why he had gathered them. He went to each of them and said, Translate the Torah of Moses, your teacher, for me. And the Talmud describes that a miracle happened, that all 72 of them made slight alterations in 36 different locations in the Torah. For example, instead of saying, Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning God created, there's a certain mistake that can happen. Because if you actually read that literally in Hebrew, Bereshit, which means in the beginning, bara Elohim, which could be read, could be misread as this entity called Bereshit created bara Elohim, created Elohim, as if there's some other power named Bereshit that preceded God. So in order to avoid Ptolemy and the Greeks to misinterpret the Torah, they changed it in some places from its literal interpretation to to interpretation that is more accurate. And this story, it's it's noteworthy for several reasons, because now we know that uh, 22, I think it was was 245, so about... uh, 2,250 years ago, the Greeks already had a copy of the Torah, and thus any questions about us altering the Torah really cannot start from that point on, because already at that time we were powerless to try to change it because it's already in the hands of the Greeks, so we can't change it, number one. But number two, I think this really shows some of the uh, unique relationship that the Jews have with the Greeks and the commonalities that they had. Both of them are obsessed with knowledge, are obsessed with learning, obsessed with literature. They all have, they both had a universalistic vision for mankind. And that's why uh, the Greeks were so interested in learning about the Jewish way of life and Jewish culture and the Torah. The problem is that just like the Greeks were interested in us, we, or certainly many groups of Jews, were also interested in them. So Hellenism is being uh, is being promoted by the Ptolemies, and it really had a harsh impact on the nation. So Greek cities were built in Israel, like we mentioned, libraries full of Greek philosophy were erected, pagan temples, gymnasiums, and houses of entertainment and sport were built. And unfortunately, there's a swath of Jews that were swept away by this initial wave of Hellenistic influence. And also internally, we meet the rise of two other groups, one of them called the Baitusim. Not so, not, not, we don't know so much about them uh, historically, but uh, their sister group called the Tzedokim or the Sadducees, they both rise at this time in history. These were two students of the rabbis. One of them's name was Baitus, one of them's name was Tzadok, and they began to reject a central core tenet of Judaism, the Oral Torah. And thus, they each spawned a, a, a following, one called the Baitusim, the followers of Baitus became the Baitusim, the followers of Tzadok became the Tzedokim, known in English as the Sadducees, 
and they would be a subsection of the Jews that's going to cause a lot of problems for the masses for about 300 years. Uh, and they begin at this time. So uh, we'll ask questions at the end. We'll ask questions at the end. Um, Baitusim were probably as impactful as the Tzidokim. It's just that they're not written so much about uh, by uh, Josephus, so we don't know so much about them from a historical sense outside of uh, outside of Jewish literature. Now, in 198, so this is about 125 years after Alexander died, the Assyrians, they captured Judah under the leadership of Antiochus III, alternatively known as Antiochus the Great, and they assumed control over the Jews. So the Jews now ping-pong back to being under the Assyrian or the Seleucid Greeks. And things are going to change very rapidly. Because in 175, so 20-some-odd years later, Antiochus IV, who fashioned himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus the Great or Antiochus God Manifest, even though he was derisively called behind his back Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the Lunatic, because it was more fitting for his character, uh, he became the emperor over the land. Now, he believed himself to be divine, which is a a sure sign of being deranged. So he would erect statues of himself in all the temples of all the religious peoples under his rule, And he would mandate that no matter, regardless of whatever religion people were part of, they would have to have a statue of Antiochus in their house of worship and that they would have to prostrate themselves before him. And this obviously caused major problems for the Jews, even though initially he didn't force the Jews to do that. But he himself behaved very strangely. He would dance in the nude at these lavish Hellenistic entertainment entertainments that he... Uh, commissioned, but mo- most uh, tragically, most uh, um, problematic for the Jews was that he began to aggressively and forcefully push the Hellenistic agenda. He began by meddling into the internal Jewish affairs. Now, at the time, the Kohen Gadol, the uh, high priest, he was in charge of the spiritual leadership of the people, But he was also a proxy, a representative between the Jewish people and their lords and the, and the, and the Greeks. And they, for example, would be in charge of tax collecting. They would have a certain amount of money they need to collect and, uh, and they would be in charge of collecting it from the people and giving it to the Greeks. At the time, a uh, high priest by the name of Chonia, Onias in English, he was a righteous high priest and his brother, whose name is Jason, His name, his name was Yeshua, but he Hellenized, he was a Hellenized uh, brother of the high priest who renamed himself Jason, a more Greek name. He came to Antiochus and said, listen, make me, install me as the high priest. I'll be your guy. I'll push your agenda of Hellenism. Oh, and by the way, I'll increase the revenue that you get from the taxes. So, Antiochus starts to meddle into the internal Jewish affairs and says, Onias, Chonio, you're, you're no longer high priest. Now your brother Jason is the high priest. And he became high priest and he had a devastating effect on the Jews. So first thing he did, he built a gymnasium right outside of the temple in Jerusalem, 
where uh, he encouraged young Jewish boys to go there. And once someone went there to us, like gymnasium, they went to play basketball. No, it's not that. It's they went to reject and renege upon their Judaism. And that was very unfortunate. And that began kind of intensification of forceful Hellenism. Now, a few years into his reign, he began an outright assault on Judaism. He established severe, restrictive edicts uh, against many core Jewish practices. He banned the study of Torah. He banned the observance of Shabbos or other Jewish holidays. He banned the exclusivity of kosher, circumcision, the laws of Nida, all these on pain of death. They would force feed pigs to Jews, Jewish mothers who had, who dared to have their son sacri- uh, circumcised, not sacrificed. That wouldn't be a good idea. Uh, Jewish mothers who dared to have their children, their sons circumcised, they would take the child, tie them around the neck of the mom, and chuck them off cliffs. cliffs. Really cruel and really brutal. But the worst of all, especially for the Jews at the time, they, he installed a idol to the pagan god Zeus in the temple and he commissioned sacrifices to it. And there is, in, in our view, there is no greater defilement of the sacrosanct than to have the holy temple be defiled in such a manner. Now, it's important to mention here that we tend to think of this efforts of Hellenization to be primarily the result of Antiochus. The truth is, it was primarily the result of the Jewish Hellenizers. And indeed, if you look at any point in history where there's great tragedy, frequently the Jews themselves are more to blame for their misfortune than the Gentiles that come up with the really aggressive edicts against the Jews. They, these Hellenizers were a different variety of Jews. These were Jews that, you know, they were... Uh, the kind of Jews that we uh, unfortunately see some of them today, self-hating Jews. They wanted to stamp out the Jewish national uh, character. They wanted to become Greeks and to forget about what it means to be Jewish. So they stoked the fires of this Hellenistic uh, efforts of Antiochus, and he just followed suit with what they wanted. Now, the majority of Jews, it's important to note, we see a rise in heroism at this time. The majority of the Jews, well, some of them capitulated, they yielded to Antiochus and the Greeks mostly out of fear. You have the Hellenizers, those are the bad people. Uh, They were the ones who encouraged this. Some Jews yielded out of fear, but the overwhelming majority of Jews, they resisted and they refused to obey, even if it meant great suffering. Men and women were strangled, they were whipped to death, really terrible things, torn to pieces, crucified alive. At this time, we see a lot of Jews are escaping. They escape to the mountains, they escape to the caves, and thus the tradition of the dreidel comes from this time. What what they would do is they would go to the caves to study Torah, and when the authorities are inspecting all the caves to see who's studying Torah, who's performing mitzvos, they'd pull out the game. They'd pull out the game, oh, we're just here playing dreidel. And that became the tradition. Now, it's important to note that we see a little bit of a bifurcation here with the Jewish people. The Hellenizers, they're all gung-ho about this. But all the other Jews that were kind of on the fence, uh, they they were, you know, it, 
they were enchanted by Hellenism, of course. It was very enchanting, but they were still loyal Jews. So they were kind of torn between these two worlds. Those Jews, well, to them, they re- now the real character of the Greeks became clear and apparent, and they obviously uh, were horrified by what they saw, and that indeed strengthened the Jewish character and resolve for most people. Now, we know the story of Hannah and her seven sons. Uh, That is uh, a great example. It's a symbol of the countless, the thousands of men and women who demonstrated a most fiery devotion to God in the midst of such challenges. There was widespread martyrdom, widespread heroism, but things were really, really bad. In in the year 167, in the city of Modi'in, a band of Greek soldiers came. They erected an altar, and they sought a Jew. They gathered all the Jews and said, is there a Jew here who's willing to sacrifice a pig to the pagan god? Matisyahu, who was the local priest, an elderly priest, a sage, priest is a kohen, he delivers an impassioned speech urging the Jews to refrain, don't do this, don't capitulate, refuse This is an act of treason. This is a tremendous sin. Yet, there was a volunteer, a local Hellenized Jew, stepped forward. He ascended the platform. He takes the knife to sacrifice the pig. And Matisyahu, the elderly Kohen, in a fit of zealotry, he unsheaths a sword that he had hidden under his robes. He slays the traitor. And then he sets his eyes on the Greek soldiers and all the Jews as at once pounce upon them, slay them all. And thus begins the Maccabean revolt. The Jews head to, to, the, uh, to the fields, to the mountains, to the hills. They start attacking uh, groups of Greek soldiers and their outposts. They are uh, personified by insane warfare, they were fearless, they were reckless, they were wild, they had zero fear of dying, they would have these blood-curling shrieks that they would, uh, that they would scream, a bunch, a bunch of, imagine a bunch of crazy Jews just screaming, running like madmen, that's what they were when they fought, and Antiochus, who is now in Antioch, he of course named the city after himself, in Turkey, he sends a general by the name of Apollonius with 2,000 seasoned soldiers to squelch the Ragtag Rebellion. The Jewish forces are now being led by Judah Maccabee, who's one of the sons of Matisyahu. They comprise 600 men, and they lay in wait in the hills. They wouldn't follow the the law, the rules, so to speak, of warfare. They engaged in guerrilla warfare. So the Greeks are walking between these hills. They, of course, have the height advantage. They have a surprise attack. They decimate the entire group. Judah seizes Apollonius' sword and uh, brandishes it victoriously, and he would indeed use that for the rest of the war. And as such, the revolt expands. It spreads like wildfire amongst the Jews, and masses of eager Jews that are disgusted 
by the extent of the Hellenization efforts of the Romans. They joined the resistance. The force, which was small, now swells to a thousand men. Antiochus sends an additional general by the name of Ciron. He has a force of not 2,000, but 4,000 men to destroy the renegade group. They land in Jaffa. They're confident of this success. They encounter the Jews in battle. The Drew and the Greeks were totally not prepared for the maniacal guerrilla warfare that the Jews showed. Like we said, they would shriek their battle cries, Mi kamocha ba'elim Hashem, who is like who is like you amongst the gods Hashem? And the acronym of that is Maccabee, which is why they're called the Maccabees as well. In that battle, 800 Greeks were killed. The remainder, the remainder scattered and fled for their lives. Antiochus was determined to absolutely crush the rebellion. He sent this time an army of 40,000 men including 7,000 cavalry, including the equivalent of tanks, which were war elephants, led by three prominent generals to finally, once and for all, stamp out the rebellion. They were so confident in their victory that they actually advertised in slave markets that there would soon be a glutton supply there's going to be a bonanza for all the slave owners. So they all gather, all the slave owners gather to the local uh, marketplace to prepare for the ensuing uh, capture of all the Jewish slaves. Judah and his forces were encamped in what's now uh, is in a city called Mitzpah, which is where the prophet uh, Samuel is buried. It's in the outskirts of Jerusalem today. Uh, the Greeks got word of his encampment and they decided to mount a surprise midnight attack against Judah and his 5,000 men. Judah got wind of this and he planned a concurrent midnight attack uh, against the Greek encampment. So they traveled the entire night and then when they would battle, they were actually a religious, uh, a religious army. So when they would battle, it was the entire battle was about prayer. It was about Torah. And thus the whole night that they're marching to the Greek uh, encampment, they're actually fasting. And they're praying to God to give them salvation. They arrive at the Greek camp. They divide into four groups. They pounce concurrently from all sides, again shrieking like maniacs. The Greeks, they're sleeping. They're awakened by these blood-curling shrieks and are absolutely slaughtered. 9,000 Greeks died and the force of the army and the enemy was stunted. That other group that had gone to Mitzpah to attack the Jews in the middle of the night, they come to the camp, they find it totally empty, they come back and they're slaughtered as well. Soon afterwards, news, which ended up to be not true, but it had an important effect, arrived from Antioch that Antiochus had died. Uh, this inspired the Jews to know that their enemy, the leader of the opposition, was dead, and they proceeded to march to Jerusalem and to liberate it. After a three-year revolt, the Maccabees, which would end up being known as the Chashmonaim or the Hasmoneans, they succeeded in recapturing the temple. They rededicated it. The term Chanukah 
uh, can mean several things, but one of, one of the meanings of the word Hanukkah is rededication, because they would rededicate the temple. They got to the temple, and unfortunately did not have many of the vessels were plundered by the Greeks. So they built a makeshift menorah, like a kind of one that you would do if you didn't have a menorah. They just assembled uh, containers to hold the oil, but they were faced with a major problem because they didn't have uh, any uncontaminated oil to fill their flasks with. But they miraculously found a single flask of oil that had in it the stamp of the high priest. That was the, uh, the, the first drop, the virgin olive oil, the best kind of oil. They lit it. It was supposed to last for one day, miraculously it lasted for eight days, and that granted them sufficient time to produce new virgin olive oil and to, to maintain that tradition, to that mitzvah. Now, in commemoration uh, and memorialization of this fantastic series of events, the sages of Israel established the holiday of Hanukkah to remember the great victory of, of the Jews over their enemies, but more importantly, to memorialize the preservation of the Jewish religion and Torah in spite of their opponents. Now, importantly, the war continued on for many years. All five brothers of, uh, all five sons of Matthias, of Matisyahu, died, with the exception of Shimon. Eventually, they succeeded in reestablishing hegemony over the entire land. Shimon becomes the prince. He doesn't become the king, very important. He becomes just the prince, and they would maintain, the Hasmonean dynasty would maintain sovereignty over the land for nearly a hundred years until the arrival of Pompey and the Romans. It's important that this family, the Hashmonaim, the, the family of Matisyahu, they were Kohens. And we know that a Kohen cannot be a king because they're from the tribe of Levi. To be a, to be a, uh, a just king of Israel, you have to be from the tribe of Judah, from the Davidic line, from the, from the family of King David. When Shimon became king, became, well, he became king functionally, but he didn't call himself king because he made a clear distinction in recognition of the fact that he wasn't a king uh, because he couldn't be a legitimate king of Israel. Unfortunately, uh, the future generations of Hasmoneans didn't have that same sensitivity. They called themselves kings, and they indeed descended. And the the legacy of the Hasmonean dynasty is a little bit of a mixed bag because it begins with this valiant effort to restore Torah, to restore purity, to get rid of the idol worshiping and idol worshippers all over the line, out of the land of Israel. It begins with a righteous king, but unfortunately his son and the rest of the line would all be Sadducees and sadly that wouldn't last and the Romans would arrive. Now the holiday of Hanukkah we have a special prayer that really captures the essence of the miracle and we read this during the holiday of Hanukkah. I want to read it here to you guys. In the days of Matisyahu the son of Yochanan Kohen Gadol the high priest and his sons when the evil, wicked Greek kingdom stood up on your 
nation Israel, to make them forget your Torah, to remove them from the laws of your will, and you, God, with your overwhelming mercy, you stood up for them in their time of sorrow, you fought their battles, you judged their judgings, you avenged their vengeance, you gave the mighty ones, i.e. the Greeks, in the hands of the weak ones, you gave the multitudes in the hands of the few, you gave the impure in the hands of the pure, you gave the wicked in the hands of the righteous, and those that are wanton sinners in the hands of those that study Torah. And for you, O God, you made a great and holy name in your world, and for your nation, you made a uh, salvation, a great salvation, on uh, like this day, i.e. as bright as the day. And afterwards, your children came to your house, to your temple. They cleared out the sanctuary from all the idolatry. They purified the holy location and they lit the candles in the courtyard of your holiness. And they established the eight days of Hanukkah to give thanks and to praise God to your, to your great name. It's important to note the way we look at this we look at it as primarily being a religious war. They came to make us forget the Torah. They came to make us go away from the laws of Torah. And indeed, we know that Torah won a tremendous victory. What's important to note, if you actually read the historical accounts that the non-Torah individuals, entities, wrote of that war and that rebellion, that successful rebellion, they were written primarily by Sadducees. So uh, Josephus is a Sadducee. He doesn't mention the miracle of the candle. The book of Maccabees, which is not a holy book for us, it's a holy book for the Christians, but that tells the story in detail. That was also written by Sadducee Jews, and they attempted to augment the military aspects of the war, which indeed war, you know, they were miraculous, but they tried to downplay the religious implications of the war, and that's manifested, personified uh, by the oil, by the miracle of the oil. And it's important to note that when the sages established, when they established the memorialization of this holiday, they did it by not focusing. There's no mitzvah that's oriented with the warfare. You think about it. You have a group of uh, 4,000 warriors standing in the face of 40,000 seasoned warriors with generals and with professional armaments. That's a tremendous miracle. Yet, the miracle that is perpetuated for eternity, that it's eternized, is the one about the religious implications, the one of the flask of oil. And I think the lesson for us is that what was truly under assault was Torah, what was truly under assault was the character of our nation. And indeed, what would have been much more disastrous had uh, it not come forth was the, uh, was the Torah. If you think about it, and this is again uh, a pattern we see throughout history, if we lose a battle, it's a confined loss. It's terrible, maybe there's tragedy, maybe there's... Uh, maybe there's victims, but the Jewish nation goes on. 
If you take the Jews away from Torah, on the other hand, if you disassociate our connection to God, then within a generation or two, will be gone. And I want to make the argument that the battle of Hanukkah, the military battle, well, that's over. Indeed, that continued. That was about a 28-year battle. And it's over. And it really has no meaning for us. But the spiritual battle of Hanukkah, that continues. Because while the Hellenists are gone and the Sadducees are gone, their ideas are still in our world. There are many Jews today that would love nothing more than to have the Jews become Hellenists. So what does that mean today? It means to get acculturated to the host nation, wherever that may be. It could be in France, in England, in Germany, in South America, or in the United States. There's Jews today that identify not as Jews, but as what, whatever country they're, they're living in. And let me ask you a question. How is it any different than Hellenism. It's modern day Hellenism. And thus we still face, we, when we get to the holiday of Sukkot, uh, I'm sorry, the holiday of Hanukkah, we have to realize that this is not merely uh, reenacting a miracle that happened so long ago. Of course, that's important. But what's important for us to realize that the Torah is always under assault throughout every point in history. It's under assault. And there's Hellenists, and there's Sadducees, and there's Greeks. Today, they have different names, and they have different styles, but the real goal, the real war, to make us forget the Torah, and to disassociate us from, from the mitzvahs of God, that is still in place. And thus, I think we have to take a lesson on this holiday to try to uh, be heroic, and have you know the same inspiration that they had to stand up for for their beliefs.